So this summer, we are asking the question, who is Jesus? Uh, This is a question that we have been asking for centuries and will continue to ask and will never go away. Even in our secular age, this is a question that will never go away. And we will be haunted by the question, who is Jesus? I mean, it was Flannery O'Connor who wrote many decades ago, while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. And the same could be said about Columbus, Ohio in 2018. And so for the next few months through the summer, we're going to be exploring the identity of Jesus. But this is important on his terms. And so we're not going to be, uh, be putting Jesus into our box. Instead, we're going to let Jesus speak for himself. And so to do this, we'll be looking at John's writings. Because in John's writings in the Bible, uh, John records for us nine I am statements. And last week, Jesus told us he is the bread of life. If you look at chapter eight, verse 12, you'll see him saying something else. Let's read it briefly, pray and then explore it together. So John 8, 12 says this again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. So every July, my family heads north to Michigan. My wife's family has a cottage. And all year we look forward to it. Especially right about now, we start to look forward to the swimming, the reading, the fire pit. For me, at least, the board games. If you know me. But one of the things we look forward to the most are the fireworks. There's another cottage across the, across the lake that puts on a private firework display that really rivals red, white, and boom. It really does. They must spend thousands and thousands of dollars on these fireworks. And every time I'm like, this is awesome. But I also, inside my mind, I'm like, why are they spending this money on these fireworks? Uh, have you ever wondered why we spend money on fireworks? Has that ever thought... Has that thought ever crossed your mind? I guess Americans spend on an annual basis about $700 million on fireworks. Why? Why? Well, there's probably a lot of reasons. But one that is most interesting to me is because we are storytellers. If you were with us last week, you remember Sean saying that we are storytellers. Without an overarching story, our lives become disoriented. And we lose a central purpose and direction in our life. So all Americans have this powerful origin story. We gained independence from slavery. And we did it through a war, right? A battle. And so when we set these fireworks off, we are are reenacting our origin. And it's a powerful story. And that's why I think... I think some people just like fire too. But I think that's why we so get in to fireworks. It's more than remembering. It's a reenacting. When fireworks go off, we reenact the battle for independence. 
Well, something like this is happening in what we just read. Because Jesus does not just say this famous statement, I am the light of the world, in a vacuum. He doesn't just say it in this sort of nondescript setting. He says it in a very loaded and highly symbolic setting. Much like our 4th of July. If you take a look at the text and you backstep to John 7, verse 2, you'll get a clue. John 7, verse 2 says, Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. And if you fast forward to verse 14, you'll read this. About the middle of the feast of booths, that is, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And so when we hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, we have to understand that he is in the temple during the feast of booths. What is the feast of booths? Well, as the name implies, it's a feast and there's booths involved. So let's explore that for a second. First, the booths. What are the booths? Well, they're like tents. And so pilgrims would come up to Jerusalem and they would set up tents. Why? They are reenacting their wilderness wanderings. Much like our fireworks are reenacting a battle, their booths or their tents are reenacting. Their wilderness experience after God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. Okay, booths. What about the festival part? Well, it's a time of intense celebration. There was singing, there was dancing, there was celebrating. Uh, The whole thing was a giant celebration of God's rescue. And so besides watching your rabbi dance, which I guess was a rare thing, besides watching him dance, there was another exciting thing about the celebration that happened every year. It was a festival of light. It was a festival of light. They would set ablaze four massive candelabra or torches or candles. These things were like 75 feet tall. And they were so bright that people would say that it lit up not just all of Jerusalem, but all of Israel. If you've been to a massive bonfire, you might get a sense of what it feels like to be at this festival. And so why do you think they did this? Again, a reenactment. A reenactment of what? A reenactment of their wilderness. Why? Because in their wilderness, as they are in booths, God showed up. And how did he show up? Do you remember? He showed up as a pillar of light. And so every year they would reenact this, hence the bonfire. Hence the important detail that Jesus says, I am the light of the world during the festival of booths. And so according to verse 20 of chapter 8, if you look down, according to verse 20 of chapter 8, you say, you see that these words that he spoke, the words that we just heard aloud that he spoke to us, happened in the treasury. Which is exactly where the torch lighting ceremony occurred. So imagine in your mind's eye, Jesus completely backlit by a burning light. And he looks at you and he says, I am this. I am the light of the world. 
And whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so now we have a job to do as readers of Scripture, don't we? We have a job now. It's an exciting journey. Uh, we should try to discover what that light meant to the people for whom that light was shining on. If you're standing in that courtyard, if you're standing next to the treasury, and Jesus says, I am this, then we have a fun job to do, don't we? What is this? And what does that mean? And then what does that say about Jesus? And then what does that say about us as Jesus followers? So the first clue is in Exodus 30. Or actually it's 13. Exodus 13, verse 20. And so you could turn there if you would like, or you can listen along. Exodus 13, 20 describes the Israelites' journey into the wilderness after God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. And it says, starting in verse 20, And they moved on from Succoth and, and encamped at Etham, on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, and that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. That is grace. That is grace. God who dwells in unapproachable light draws near to his Israelite people, and he does so, and it says in the text, he never departs them. And so when they lit those torches, they were saying, our God is a God who draws near. And Jesus stands in front of that flame and says, I am that God of presence. He's saying he is God's presence. I announced the Men's Adventure Weekend. Uh, and last year, if you were with us, you know that some of us went rock climbing. And then even more, or even less actually, went night climbing. I'm looking around. Hey, so you went night climbing. So you remember, uh, what that meant is as you climbed, you had a lantern on your head. And as you climbed, you could only see about two to three feet in front of you. You basically could see the next hold. And that's kind of terrifying when you're, you know, like 50, 60, 70 feet off the ground. Well, that's what it's like when God's guiding and gracious light showed up. In the presence of his people in the wilderness. It was like a light. It was like a headlamp just showing the next step. But it never departed. It never departed. And that means when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And he's pointing to this light. He is saying, I am God's guidance. I am God's presence. I am God. With a heartbeat. In flesh. Before you. What else? Well, turn a chapter in Exodus 14 and verse 19 will give us another clue. Not only is Jesus saying by I am the light is he saying I am the presence of God, but he's saying something else. Verse 19 of chapter 14 describes how Pharaoh's army followed hard after Israel trying to destroy them for leaving. So verse 19 says, then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel, picture this, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved between, uh, moved from before them and then stood behind them. Why? Verse 20, coming between the host or the army of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. 
with fire and with light, God protected his people from anything that would harm them. And so when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, he is saying, I am not only God's presence, I am God's protection. I am your warrior. I will fight for you. I don't think we appreciate how scary the dark is as much in our day because of artificial light. Just look above you. Uh, But we still know that terrible things happen in the dark. We still call really unnerving things dark. And some of us still get very uneasy in the dark, even with artificial light all around. But imagine the ancient world where there was no artificial light. How terrifying the dark was. About 15 years ago, a group of friends and I went camping and a drunk man sort of crashed our fire that we were having. And we were talking, we were being all super spiritual, you know, doing campfire talk. And this drunk man comes in and sort of just takes over the entire thing. And when we told him finally, because we were super nice, when we told him finally after hours, hey, go away, (laughs) he got belligerent. And as he left, he said, I'm coming back with my gun. And we said, okay. And listen, for hours later, we were sitting around the fire and we were able to shrug that off. But as soon as that fire went away, and as soon as we went to our dark tents, someone said, I'm married and I have a small child. I'm packing up and going home, man. (laughs) He did. And then it was like dominoes. We all were like, yeah, you're right. Let's go home. Yeah, let's go home. And so we packed up and we left, even though it took hours to get to this place. And we went home. Why? Because the dark. Because the dark. Notice we had a courage and a boldness when that fire was set in front of us. But when that went out, we were like, nope, we're checking out. That's too much. Well, that primal fear of dark. It's just a hint of what dark means in the ancient culture. I mean, that's why the Bible's main image for sin and evil is darkness, where stumbling happens, where falling happens, where getting lost happens. And this means that when Jesus says, I am the light, he is saying, I am your only protection. I will destroy my enemies and your enemies. I am your warrior. I am your safety. Come to me. Whatever this light Reflects, I am the fullness of that. And of course, the shadow that was made from that light led to the cross. Where Jesus not only died for our sins, but died to defeat your and his enemies. Shaming the powers that be. Shaming Satan. Defeating him once and for all. He is, as the Latin says, Christus Victor. He is the victory of God. He is our only protection. Well, what else did this light mean? This light also meant uh, something else. We can find our clue in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 gives us this final clue. So he's the presence of God. He's the protection of God. What else? Isaiah 9, 2. This is uh, the prophet Isaiah. The people who walked in darkness, it says, have seen a great light. And those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. 
Moving to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government, the powers that be, shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government, his rule... In the peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of armies will do this. And this was a precious promise to God's people that there would be a light that would come into their scary and hopeless Darkness And think about it. In the context in which Jesus was standing on that, in front of that light, they were occupied by the Roman army. They had all kinds of hopes that a light would dawn and rescue them. And Jesus comes into the scene and says, I am that light you're hoping in. And so Israel was not just looking backward with this light. They were looking forward with this light. They were anticipating this light. They were anticipating this rescue. And so when Luke records that light appears to the shepherds. Or in Matthew, that a star lights the way for these pagan magicians. They're trying to tell you something. What are they trying to say? They're trying to tell you that this light that you are anticipating to rescue you is first of all surprising. You are expecting a warrior to come and to rise up an army and to destroy the Roman occupation just like the Maccabees of old. which just would have been in their collective imagination. They knew that they were rescuers, that they were messiahs that never panned out. And all these writers are saying, the true light is here, but it's not what you're thinking. As John Dixon puts it, their expectation was that this Messiah, this this coming one, would crush their enemies. And what Jesus does when he comes is he says, you know what your biggest problem is? Your biggest problem is that you are an enemy of God. And I am here to take care of divine, divine, displeasure. I'm here to absorb the wrath of God for you. You know, we are all unrighteous. You can't draw out two camps, the righteous ones and the evil ones or the enemy. Jesus comes and says, love your enemy. And by the way, you too are an enemy of God unless you trust me. It's a surprising light. But the second thing these lights point to with Jesus when he's pointing to it is saying is saying, I am that promised rescue. What am I rescuing you from? I'm rescuing you from the biggest problem in your life, which is the wrath your sin deserves. He's the only happy ending to your story. He is not just his presence. He is not just his protection, but he is God's promised 
rescue. All right, what does that mean for us? I mean, we're not standing uh, in a temple court in the Middle East. And so let's try to convert what we're hearing and what we're experiencing in this text for our day and age. And I have a couple suggestions. And the first is this. Let's reject, okay, let's reject artificial light. Let's do that. Let's reject. Let's, let's, let's reject artificial light. What do I mean? Well, the world is a dark place. We can all agree. Amen. The world is a dark place. Our hearts are a dark place. Our experiences are very dark. And so what we are all trying to do, whether you call yourself a Christian or not with us this morning, what we are all trying to do is to find and then rely upon some source of light in our darkness. And so we seek artificial light. And just like light bulbs in the hardware store, these artificial lights come in all kinds of variations. And I might help you to think of these in terms of three categories, not my own. Cultural artificial lights, personal artificial lights, and religious artificial lights. So, according to Ed Stetzer, this is uh, cultural artificial lights is when we pursue our hopes and ambitions through the deceptive promises of our world's ideologies and values. So an entire cultural movement that we are still a part of in some ways, uh, uh, a movement of self-reliance is called the enlightenment, for instance. The enlightenment, that the light that we need in this dark world is within us and we simply need to tap into our own resources to figure life out and to be safe and secure. And that modernist project or that enlightenment project, we are still experiencing. However, we are getting better and better at pointing out how rotten it is as a light. How, how artificial it is as a light. And how empty it is as a light. I mean, we are doing our best in this cultural moment tearing down these artificial lights and saying these are not what we thought that they were. But we're in the midst of it. We, we don't know what else to do. Those are cultural, artificial lights. There's personal artificial lights. This is when we find protection or purpose. And we push away fear. And we push away anxiety through power. Through personal freedom. Through experiences. Through indulgences. And then there's religious artificial light. And this is the trickiest one because it looks so good and makes us so moral. And this is when we find protection or purpose and we push away our fears. We push away our anxieties through the rhythms and the self-help schemes of spirituality and religion. And there ain't no Jesus anywhere to be found. All of these are self-empowerment. All of these are enlightenment projects. All of these, Jesus would say in front of the burning torch, I am the light you're seeking. And so reject the artificial light. I think that's the first thing I'd want us to do in light of Jesus' teaching. I think the second thing that we would, I would love us to think about as we consider Jesus' teaching is this. Rest in the real light. 
If we reject the false light, now rest in the real light. One scholar says that ancient cultures had a reverential dependence. Catch that word. A reverential dependence on what? On physical light. Ancient cultures had a reverential dependence on physical light because the darkness was terrifying. And so Jesus says in a dark night, I am the light. (laughs) Convert your reverential dependence off of whatever else you're depending on and onto me. Only I bring life, he says. Follow me, and I will give you the light of life. So in my office, some of you have been in my office, you know that it's a pretty drab place. It's like the former uh, CompuServe headquarters. And so just imagine like, uh, you know, the tech industry in their heyday in the 90s, uh, big, big Coke bottle glasses. I mean, they were living the life. Well, I am now, I have my office in one of these buildings with like 16 modem options if you ever wanted to plug in. But I'm in this and there's fluorescent lights much like we have right here. And my wife, because she's my wife and she's awesome, she's like, you need real life in there. So let me buy you a plant. And not this kind of plant from Ikea. Like a real living plant. This is what you need, Joe. (laughs) Okay, so there's a plant sitting on my desk. Well, as a priority, we're like, we're getting a window in this thing. We need a window in this thing. And I've noticed that when I have that window shut and I leave that office for a few days, I come back, that plant is dying. Even if the fluorescent lights are on. Especially if the fluorescent lights are on. I can go days without opening that window. But when I open that window, what happens? That plant flourishes. That plant becomes alive. Artificial light kills. Jesus is saying, I bring to life. I am the life. So let's start following Jesus for that life. You know, when we follow, when we yoke ourselves to Jesus, when we, when we um, uh, sort of uh, uh, take on and stay near to Jesus with our desperation, when that happens, uh, did you know that we become more alive? I mean, you may have reservations in following Jesus, and I don't blame you. I don't blame you at all. But your reservation might be because if I follow Jesus, that means I get close to him who's light. And if I get close to light, that means I am going to be exposed. And I don't know if I'm ready for that. I have too many things in my past. I have too many things that I'm hiding. I have too many things that I'm ashamed of. And I don't really want Jesus to come in and shine light on that. Well, here's what happens with Jesus, unlike other, you know, other false lights. <clears throat> Jesus will expose you, yes. And that's uncomfortable, yes. But the very minute He exposes your sin, He forgives your sin. It's like this. Imagine you're in a doctor's office and the doctor says, listen, I am going to diagnose you accurately and it's going to be scary. But then I'm going to give you a prognosis that will wash away all of your fears and your shame. That's exactly what happens when you come to Jesus in faith. When you come to Jesus in faith, you come to him empty handed and he exposes you. And he loves you. At the same time. And that is freedom. No more hiding and no more shame. 
No more lying. And no more fear. And so rest in His light. I think there's a third thing, and we'll close with this. Reject false light. Rest in true light. I think the third thing we want to do in light of Jesus' teaching is to refract His light in our lives. When you repent of false light and when you rest in real light, you can start shining as light in the world. This is what Paul says in his letter to the ancient Philippian church. He says, that, he says shine as light in the world. Surely he was thinking of Jesus' teaching. Where he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever, whoever walks near me in their desperation will have the light of life. Surely Paul is saying, shine forth. Now what does that look like? What does that mean in our lives? Well, it doesn't mean we're perfect. But what it does mean is that we stay close to him. In our need, in our hunger, in our thirst, in our desperation. Paul told the early ragtag believers that they lived in a kingdom of light. Didn't he? This was in the first chapter of Colossians. And in such a kingdom, as I said earlier, if you're, if you're in the kingdom of light, Jesus will then be exposing you all the time and reminding you of his coverage all the time. You're in Christ. You're not condemned. So what that means is that he is both unapproachable light and a, and a light that approaches you. How is that even possible? Well, as I said earlier, it's possible because of the work of the cross. Because at the work of the cross, Jesus, who is light, entered into darkness that you deserve to enter into. The darkness that our evil, that our hearts deserve, he entered into on your behalf. So that we might then be in his presence the light. And we might then have purpose in our life to shine forth as light. It would be impossible apart from what he did on the cross. And so what that means is that our lives now are, are we're able to refract the light. Now notice I said refract and not reflect. I have nothing against the word reflect. And sure, we can reflect uh, Jesus' light. But I like refract. And I chose that word on purpose because reflect is when light bounces Refract is when light bends. Refraction is when light bends. And so here's an artist, Mako Fujimura. He uses the word refraction instead of reflection when talking about his artwork. In his art, he uses crushed materials and the finest materials like gold, real gold. And so he crushes these materials and he, on a canvas. So that the light would be refracted through that crushed material. And if that's not an image for what it means to be a Christian, I don't know what is. We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are broken vessels. And as Leonard Cohen put it, the cracks are how the light gets through. So Jesus... And saying, I am the light of the world. And Paul saying, shine his lights. It cannot mean be perfect and pretend you're perfect. What it can mean is God's power rests on you. And it's made perfect by your cracks, by your weaknesses. And you can be a faithful witness to Jesus the light. And the light will refract through you. That's how we shine.
So whatever it is that's been crushed in your life, whatever it is that's been cracked in your life, see these as ways in which the light actually becomes more beautiful. It's not wasted. You don't need to forget about it forever. You can start to see that Jesus is redeeming it and using the cracks, using the crushed material as ways that his light refracts and creates beauty. Let's pray. We thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us, pointing us to you when we are so desperate for safety, so desperate for your presence, and so desperate for rescue. Lord, would we come to you, the light, this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.